1: In the blackness in the night. It is in the blackness of night that the light of a dream shines. The visibility of its light depends on darkness, darkness that in turn depends on the light to draw out its significations from a void. Dreams and darkness hold each other in Mesoamerican space-time, like the intersecting warp and weft in a weaving.
0: Thanks for joining me. I am speaking here today with Edgar Garcia, a poet and scholar of literatures and cultures of the Americas at the University of Chicago. Um, we're here today, Edgar, to talk about your new book, Signs of the Americas, and, and this is kind of a tough book for me to summarize um, for a whole range of reasons, but I tried my best to put it in a sentence. Um, so here's my go at it, Okay. Signs of the Americas is about the forms of knowledge and sign systems developed by the indigenous peoples of the Americas, and it explores how these sign systems acquired a new kind of legibility in and through the work of creative writers in the 20th century, people like Gloria Anzaldúa and William Burroughs um, and Gerald Visenor, um, and, and the tension in the book, then, is about the that it's both about these sign systems and about the transformations and the revisitings of these sign systems, the remakings of these sign systems by um, writers in the 20th and 21st century. Does that sound like an accurate summary to you?
1: Absolutely. It's a a great description of the book. And I just want to clarify that when you say sign systems, we're talking very literally about sign systems. That is the non-alphabetical, forms of inscription native to the Americas, like pictographs or picture writing, hieroglyphs, and uh, Andean knot writing, uh, known as kipu. And the way you describe it is uh, perfectly resonant with how I think about it, which is an attempt to show that these are not at all dead sign systems, as some people tend to think about them, but very much a part of a living present, whose life is found in uh, contemporary literature and art, but also uh, beyond aesthetic practices in contemporary legal thinking and environmental activism. And the story that the book tells is the story of the present life of these science systems in 20th and 21st century uh, thinking in the Americas.
0: Great. And just for um, listeners who might not know the distinctions between a pictograph and a hieroglyph, can you just give us a kind of soapbox, you know, one minute idea of what these distinctions are?
1: Yeah, I I can try. Uh, uh, So a pictograph, as I say in the book, is more metonymic uh, than a hieroglyph because its symbol points off the page to a narrative that uh, doesn't necessarily exist in relation to the image at hand, but by uh, mnemonic association connects back to a story that a person or a group of people have been transmitting uh, and transforming over a broad stretch of time. The hieroglyph is a lot closer to the alphabet. It's kind of a bridge system between pictographs and uh, alphabetical writing in that, although it has some of that associative even evocative mnemonic prompting. Uh, it also has hard relationships between visual symbols and sounds right, in the way that the alphabet uh, uh, works.
0: Right, right. Okay, um, that's super helpful, uh, or at least it clears things up for me. Uh, and if if listeners, of course, uh, want to go into more detail um, about these distinctions, they can go pick up the book. Um, but I think... Now I'd like to, to move on and to ask you uh, how you began to study these um, these Mesoamerican forms of knowledge. What um, was it something that you came across first in school? Um, did you grow up around this stuff? Just how, how did you get interested in this?
1: It definitely was not something I ever saw in school, and that is just a testament to the limited uh, pedagogies that we have around teaching the history of the Americas in the school systems of the Americas. Uh, I grew up in uh, California to a Central American family who uh, uh, came to the United States, migrated to the United States, fleeing uh, wars in uh, El Salvador and Guatemala. And it was very much a Central American household in a lot of ways. We spoke Spanish, we ate Central American food, uh, we carried the cultural fabric in um, all the ways that you imagine migrant families do. Uh, But in one very important way, uh, we did not, and that was uh, uh, through historical relation. Um, My uh, family very much uh, wanted to forget uh, that history. It was a very hard history in which they lost a lot of loved ones, and um, and the trauma was very present. So that there was that classical sense of disconnect between, uh, uh, my understanding of what Central America was and what Central America was to them. And my coming to these forms of, uh, knowledge, as you put it, uh, uh, modes of inscription, creation, understanding, perception, uh, feeling, uh, was very much born out of a desire to connect to uh, uh, build that fabric again that had been torn. And then in going back to Guatemala and, and El Salvador, in seeing still torn in a lot of ways and uh, wanting to uh, embrace what is there and what is here in the Americas, to give it a, um, a theoretical voice and to make it as privileged as the knowledge systems that we uh, inherit from uh, uh, Europe and European-descended descendant uh,
0: descended cultures. And um, do you remember a particular moment in time or an event uh, that spurred you to take on this particular task? Or was it more like something that, that uh, sort of was gestating for a while um, before you actually started to write it?
1: Uh, it was in graduate school, very late, uh, when uh, I had gone there as a, a medievalist. Uh, I'd been a medievalist as an undergraduate, studying uh, philology and Latin and romance languages, and had gone to graduate school to do early American studies. I had this idea to do a Poetics of the Americas through John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Um, uh, But then in graduate school, my grandmother died, and uh, during her uh, time of dying, I went to El Salvador to spend some time with her there, and the flood of reconnection hit me, and I asked myself, why? am I not trying to build this tapestry again? Why am I not trying to tell these stories? Why am I not embracing the um, massively complex and dynamic and uh, knowledge-bearing uh, fruits that this world has to offer? So uh, I came back from that trip and really just changed my educational outlook
0: uh, and decided to uh,
1: focus on the Americas, study the signs of the
0: Americas. That's amazing. I mean, that's... Uh you know having just finished my own graduate work i mean just the boldness and self knowledge that it takes to be able to stop like that and say you know what i'm really passionate about is is not um it's not what i've been you know trained in up until this point and i need to retrain myself that's a that's a tough decision to make
1: thanks and it uh it, it it, it may seem tough, but it was also just somewhat inevitable. I couldn't go on doing the things that no longer inspired me. And I found something that did in fact inspire me and I just had to uh, pursue it. There was no getting around it. And it wasn't easy to change a project uh, mid career, let's say, or, you know, mid graduate school in as much as that wasn't you know, that wasn't what i arrived to do and there wasn't really anybody there trained to help me do it um and i had you know su- uh, support in a lot of ways and uh, were people that helped me and then i uh, i picked up um uh uh this tome by the late great uh uh ethno poetic scholar Dennis Tedlock called 2000 years of Mayan literature And the title itself says it all, right? 2000 years of Mayan literature. How could there be 2000 Mayan years of Mayan literature if we're only thinking about literature in terms of alphabetical inscription? And Dennis's whole point in that book is to uh, lay bare the fact that literature can happen in so many other modes, modalities, textual systems, sign systems. And it was that book. And I reviewed it uh, without knowing Dennis at that time when I reviewed it and I got an email uh, uh, from him a few days after I reviewed it and it came out on Jacket 2, that review, uh, saying, uh, you are the ideal reader for my book. And, uh, and it's not because, and it's not because I, I knew everything that he was talking about, but I understood the spirit. The chaos of the world is incomplete and imperfect because it is a chaos of worlds. And each world has its own structures, forms, rhythms, and orders by which it organizes and gives meaning to chaos. In considering whether the pictograph will show up in this panorama, this book affirms that there are topographies other than the singular abyss of capitalist modernity to consider. When a person is forced to mark out their meaning amid a stream of changing semiotic regimes, it is not necessarily the case that the sign with more military might behind it conquers. The repertoires of pictography, hieroglyphs, and kipu demonstrate how signs and the worlds of their tropes persist, and they persist because they continue to problematize forcing a reconsideration of social categories, figural logics, disciplinary norms, and even what constitutes objects and situations, aesthetic, political, and otherwise.
0: story that you just told in a way already begins to answer this, this question, but I wanted to maybe begin to begin to get into the book a little bit uh, uh, to, to focus in on um, the first sentence, really, where you say um, that it is a common misconception that the era of the pictograph is over. And I guess I, I just want you to spell out for us a little bit why why that's wrong i mean what's what's wrong with saying uh that pictographs are um a thing of the past what what is it really a misconception um that the era of the pictograph is over what's wrong with saying the
1: era of the pictograph has come to a close well that it's simply not true there is an abundance of creative and critical work, and not just poetry, but legal philosophy even coming out now, that shows the important value of pictographic writing and thinking. Uh, so one of the uh, exciting moments in writing this book, doing the research for it, was encountering the work of Anishinaabe attorney and legal scholar John Burroughs in Canada, whose main research question is how to create multi-juridical legal cultures in the federal Canadian system, Um, and how to do that uh, in such a way that uh, indigenous law isn't seen as secondary or beneath uh, Canadian federal law and isn't seen as merely customary, but is understood to be interacting with it in uh, dynamic and equal ways. Um, And uh, what uh, Burroughs proposes is that pictographic inscription uh, can in fact help with that effort in as much as, you know, mentioned to you before, the pictograph takes the law off the page and puts it into the context of the conversation around the law that might be happening in a given uh, room. And uh, he's extremely literal about this. He's not saying the pictograph in a metaphorical sense. He uh, has this wonderful book called Drawing Out Law, in which each chapter uh, begins with a pictograph that he has made Uh, to represent a particular uh, legal problem uh, in Canada right now and explores the legal problem through a kind of pictographically-mediated case study analysis. Uh, So that is to say, uh, pictograph has things to teach us that the alphabet cannot in the same way that the alphabet has things to teach us that the pictograph cannot. And Burroughs in no way is proposing that we abandon alphabetical inscription but merely pointing to another resource uh, for human uh, intellection. And in that doing, uh, disrupting a chronology that colonialism imposes upon co- its colonized subjects, which is that uh, what we do is the new, right? and what you do is the old. And everything that you've done is superseded by what we bring. And, and, and that's a chronology that gets played out even in our understandings of the history of language, moving from picture to the end of history, as it were, with the alphabet, which is just not the case in, in so many ways.
0: All right. So I think it's time that we get down into some details. I, I'd like to give the listeners concrete examples of the sort of work they'll encounter um, when they buy Signs of the Americas. So let's start with Jaime de Angulo. Um, this was one of the characters really popped off the page for me. For one thing, he just had a totally crazy, fascinating life story. It involves anarchists, cowboys, Ursula Le Guin's father sex changes, um, and, and no small amount of personal tragedy. But D'Angulo is probably best known for this collection of indigenous narratives that was published under the title of Indian Tales. Um, though, as you point out, uh, the, the publishers actually butchered the work by cutting all the pictographs out of it. Obviously, we can't show those pictographs here, um, but D'Angulo did record a number of these tales, so we have an opportunity to hear them read out in his own voice. So, uh, would you just would you set up this little clip for us? Um, would you tell the listeners, you know, what it is that they're about to get into?
1: So, what the listeners are going to hear are a uh, radio broadcast that uh, uh, Dan Gulo did at the end of his life, as he was dying of cancer. Uh, he very much saw it as the culmination of his life's work. The the frame story, um, as it were, is that it is a family of animals who are traveling from their home in the mountains to the coast. And along the way, they meet other animal groups uh, and learn the cultural ways of these other animal groups as they go along, uh, imparting their own cultural ways and putting the different cultural ways into conversation, interaction. Um, uh, so it has all these kinds of anthropological moments. A lot of the uh, work is based on Hyman de Angulo's own anthropological work in the indigenous cultures of the California, uh, Oregon um, lands. And it is being translated into these stories that take place in the animal worlds that those stories themselves tell. Right? So it's like if you were collecting a myth, you didn't tell the myth as the anthropologist reporting what somebody said to you. You told the myth from the perspective of the people in the myth themselves. So fox boy telling the story, turtle old man telling the story, old man coyote telling the story.
2: But about the moons, we have different names for each one. We start with the moon of the marmot, then the moon of the ground squirrel. That's when the winter is coming to an end, and pretty soon the people will be able to get out of the winter house at last and go to the hills. And then in summer time, and later, we name the moons by the deer when the deer are turning red, when the deer are running, when the deer drop their antlers, and so on. And then in midwinter, we name two moons, one after the other, by the same name. We call it the bad moon. Hokai because that's the worst time of the year. And every fourth year we drop one of them so as to make it come right again. What do you mean, make it come right again? Why, sure. Ten and two moons would not be enough to make a whole year, and ten and three moons is too much. So we have ten and three moons, and every four years we drop one. I don't see how you people manage it to make it come right. With ten and three moons always, your night moon must be getting way ahead of your sun moon. Bear looked puzzled. Grizzly looked puzzled, too. But Grandfather Coyote was smiling to himself. He said, Ask Antelope. Maybe she knows.
0: So, um, help us um, make sense of what's happening in this clip. I mean, maybe the place to start even before we get into the content is the voice that seems sort of cultivated to, to put you in a certain kind of mood. You talk about his enunciative apparatus. In the, in the book. What, what, what would you have to say about his voice?
1: It is enunciative in a lot of ways. He's performing, he's uh, bringing to life uh, vocal plurality within his animal world that he's constructed. Uh, but it's also very much an inheritance of his own linguistic plurality as a, a very adept speaker of more than um, two dozen uh, indigenous languages as well as a, um, a native French Spanish speaker who learned his English in British Honduras, as I understand it, and therefore has that almost Caribbean uh, sound that you hear at times, uh, all coming through uh, at once in this kind of vocal heterogeneity. Uh, So that's uh, what I would say about the voice. As far as the content, what we're hearing here is the evocation of cultural difference in an indigenous. Context, So that is to say that it's not just that indigenous is put as the other to the Western, but here you have something like what Chadwick Allen has called the trans-indigenous. Uh, uh, Pomo and uh, Miwok and uh, uh, Achumawi uh, conceptions of uh, time and world form as organized by the movements of the moon across the sky. Uh, being put into conversation and difference with one another. Oh, you don't count the moons that way? Well, we count them this way. How do you make them make sense? Well, we make them make sense this way. Which uh, serves to remind us that uh, there are so many ways to organize time, none of which in any culture, uh, uh, in none of which... Uh, uh, time is compelled to respect art ways of organizing it. Right? Like the, the, the moon resists our systems and we have to tweak our systems and make it not work when it should and uh, introduce other uh, uh, tweaks to um, uh, make the moon make sense. Uh, and to me, that is very much at the um, uh, heart of one of the things that interested me in researching uh, for this book, which is to understand world form. Uh, uh, an indigenous world form, especially in relation to time uh, and how time, uh, which I translate in the book in terms of rhythm, uh, is what worlds are made out of. Right? How you organize the rhythms of your day is directly related to the music, the poetry that you live in, as well as the various um, uh, institutional rhythms uh, that you uh, inhabit or are captured by.
0: Yeah and and, and Danglos tales, the rhythm is thematized at other points with the animals you know different uh cycles of lives and and even with songs that they can't get in the right rhythm to um and so this gets directly into this question that I'm sure is at the back of a lot of people's minds which is a question I guess about um about the politics of form and about you know these categories that we often use when we're talking about someone like Dan Gulo, maybe not exactly like Dan Gulo because who could be like him, but someone who is coming and what we would often say sort of appropriating or fetishizing uh, indigenous imagery or indigenous languages um, for their own purposes. You know, this is something that we, I think quite rightly are often taught to be suspicious of. And I wanted to ask you how you think that focusing on the form of this work can help us, get at a a better way of talking about what counts as a good or bad engagements with the colonial archive or with these indigenous uh, thought systems? I don't come
1: down, I don't come down in either direction uh, uh, in that question because colonialism doesn't stop. Uh, Colonialism doesn't stop for however many uh, explanations you give for various uh, anthropological uh, projects, but the way in which you construe it and understand it really makes a difference for Um, uh, the life you're giving to the work or the life that you're taking away from it Uh, and the um, uh, taking away of life uh, from indigenous cultural systems as they appear in this book uh, uh, as I understand it, is in thinking about them only as content to be understood or criticized by European theoretical form. Right? Uh, that is through logics even of appropriation, which often are foreign to the object that you're trying to understand to begin with. Uh, so what I have tried to do in the book is to think about, well, what is the form then? Right? How does this work uh, helping me to see it and also to see its interaction beyond its let's say original site of um, uh, 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 creation elicitation um, and also beyond anything it could have imagined it would encounter in its uh, moment of originary making so that is to say How do the forms inform a bigger world consciousness than one that we arrived at when we came to it? How do we not impose, even in our social criticism, even in our social critique, um, uh, a totalizing understanding of what is a world, uh, a singular modernity, uh, onto any of these works? And in putting those two uh, uh, elements into play, that is, uh, the social critique and the aesthetic or the critical and and the creative... Um, uh, I've been uh, enormously aided by the uh, theoretical systems of the Americas themselves. Uh, So one uh, big theory that the book works with is non-synthesizing dialectic, as I found in Mesoamerican, that is to say, Mayan-Aztec-Nahuatl philosophy. Um, And by non-synthesizing dialectic, I mean, really, uh, understanding of contradiction is never resolving into synthesis. Uh, uh an appreciation for the constant tensioning of uh, of opposed parts uh, and how that tensioning is um uh, a source of mutability uh uh and um uh, life energy and that uh way of thinking uh, uh really helped to situate some western theory philosophy for the book and and it's how i arrived to walter benjamin and how walter benjamin's own desire to stay in the opposition to stay in the contradiction uh started to make sense to me so walter benjamin's appearance in the book was a way of translating mesoamerican form
0: right right yeah it it sounds to me like uh, if i could try and say back to you what i hear you saying is that in some ways rather than looking for a sort of original that is being uh you know taken or or grabbed you're asking you know are people attending to the supplement that's already there inside of the the thing that's being engaged with or are is there are there ways in which the sort of the paraliterary space that these objects produce are people occupying that paraliterary space in a way that is enlivening or desiccating
1: yeah absolutely uh one way to think about it to give a a, 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 put an object on the table uh, is through um, uh, the Popol Vuh, the Mayan story of creation. This is a new project that I have now working on a book about the Popol Vuh. And one thing that fascinates me uh, and animates me about the Popol Vuh, um, uh, this Mayan story of creation, many people have probably heard of it, have uh, uh, heard it referenced in one way or another. Um, uh, it's had an abundance of translation, adaptation in 20th and 21st century American and Latin American uh, culture and literature. One thing that people may not know about that book is how completely um, uh, enwrapped in colonial history um, its intextualization was. So it's transcribed, the text that we have, the manuscript that we have today uh, was transcribed by a colonial friar in seventeen. 01 with the intent that the work that was being transcribed would be used to better convert the natives, to better convert the Mayans. Uh, and uh, the way it was bound was within what I call a colonial fact book, which is the the um, uh, the uh, uh, the languages. Um, into which the missionaries were going to embark uh, on their mission—a uh, literal art of evangelization, the popovu—and then a commentary on the popovu that basically tells the missionaries: Don't get it wrong. This is devilish and dumb. You are there to convert the natives. There is, there is this this work that we are collecting here is simply uh, uh, to help you in that project. And what's really fascinating about the Popol Vuh, the text itself that's bound in this colonial fact book, which is held at the uh, Newberry Library in Chicago, by the way, what's really fascinating is that it's Mayan writers understand this all and include this story in the Popol Vuh. The Popol Vuh starts now in the time of Christendom, now in the time of Christianity, when we can no longer see this and when our world can no longer that, and when this and this we will make the world happen right? and then the creation story happens right? so there is uh, the absolute uh, 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 reckoning with colonial fact while um, uh, not letting go Of The possibility for indigenous world making that the substance of the book then goes on to give you and the main um, Way in which that book describes itself. It calls itself uh, This in two moments at its very beginning and at its very end is an instrument of seeing an instrument of seeing the world the mind world will be recreated. The world of the Popovu Vu will be recreated when people see this way again. Right? If there, if there isn't another synonym, a better synonym for theory, for form, I can't think of one. Right? It's talking about itself as theory, as form, as um, uh, world-defining uh, conceptual uh, system. <speaking in Spanish> So maybe maybe I mean
3: I don't know if we'll
0: have time but Let's talk about Anzaldúa um, and and an alurista because I personally was really thrilled to see them in this book. um, And I was really excited to see uh, that you were reclaiming these figures, maybe not reclaiming, I don't want to push that word on you, but giving a rereading to these figures who had uh, such an important role to play in the Chicano uh, and Latinx liberation movements of the 60s and 70s and 80s. And, and precisely because of their way of sort of mythic thinking that has often been criticized as, as fetishistic, right, or flattening. Um, and, you, and using the new kind of theoretical framework that you yourself have derived from the Mesoamerican thought, you arrive at a new way of thinking about some of their work. Um, so maybe we could talk, should we talk about Alurista? first or Anzaldua first? Who would you prefer to...
1: Either one. I think Anzaldua might be more recognizable to more people as a name. Uh, she's definitely someone that is a lot messier than most people think she is as a theoretical, intellectual, uh, spiritual thinker. I think people have a sense that they know where Anzaldua falls in a chronology of post-colonial feminism, and they know what Anzaldua is supposed to represent in terms of that chronology but um, uh, uh, when you actually get down to read the published works and then the unpublished or the recently uh, published but uh, hitherto unpublished works uh, like light in the dark you realize there's something a lot wilder and weirder happening here not only in terms of the postcolonial and the feminist but also indigenous studies, conceptions of what is Chicon X um, uh, uh, that uh, uh, I wanted to let her, uh, for herself, uh, 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 bring to light uh, uh, in, that, in the work.
3: I catch a glimpse of a face in a store window, watch its color recede, and realize that it is my face. I no longer look the same. Light radiates from me, and my body hums. I do not look like those I left behind, nor have I become a translucent criatura or a faceless chalk. I don't want to be one of them. I just want to comprehend this world. But the more I enter into it, the more it slips away. Under my feet, the ground shifts, and oppressive thickness hangs in the air too heavy to breathe. I gasp and sway with fatigue. Malaire. I've inhaled the spirits of the wind. Why am I here in this alien world, en pantla, el lugar del aislamiento, confronted by creatures who threaten me with, with their strangeness? I am afraid I will forever be alone, forever unlike others just like I was before en el otro lugar, en Nepantla, el lugar entre
1: medio, the place in between. And what that ended up producing um, in letting Enzaldúa speak for herself, uh, as it were, uh, was um, uh, somebody who's not as concerned with identity formation uh, as she's typically understood to be, uh, but much more with identity deformation, destabilization, derangement, uh, not just in terms of content. But in terms of form, right, in the form of her writing and the way in which she's constantly destabilizing what she has just said, contradicting herself three pages on, coming back to a previous contradiction and following it through as a seeming stabilization only to disrupt it, confusing parts for holes and holes for parts. And here and there, it's a a Mesoamerican poetic form, theoretical form being enacted rather than um, explicitly described uh, in her works. And this gets back to that issue uh, that uh, I have had and tried to push against, uh, which is to only ever think about writing by minoritized, subalternized, indigenous, or otherwise peripheralized people uh, in terms only of content, right? Uh, And instead, uh, to think about it in terms of form, right? What is the Form-bearing shape of this work, and how does this work not only shed light on itself but on other works too? Right? So, how does indeed Gloria Anzaldúa help us to read Walter Benjamin or William Burroughs or Michael Tausig?
0: Yeah, the way you just said it reminded me of this passage from your uh, beautiful work of poetry, uh, "Skins of Columbus," where you the, this term the complementary contradictions that are central to the to the. Forms of thought that are embodied in these mythical systems, not just in the content of the systems, but in the forms of expression and, and thought. And I was wondering if you have that quote there with you, if you could just read to us this passage of, where you speak of the core beings of the mythological systems of Mesoamerican culture. Yeah, it begins
1: with the distance and time. The distance and time. The distance in time that separates the era of the flayed god from that of Sipitio is a constant temporal condition of colonized people, is the embodiment of distances, is the intimacy of time's breaks, where the deer-hoved dogs push through their ensorcelled snouts, make explicit their consciousness of contradiction, and thus declaim themselves fleshy theory and technique, configuration as such. There is no going back only to mark out those instances in which the times do not cohere, errors and wrecks marbled like crystal into earth bed, when a little bird flies into the room to remind you of the geothermic tension between temporalities that is, under your slipping hooves, the field of political and social possibility.
0: Yes, yes. Um, We will definitely have to include some some links on there to, for people to be able to find the, that book because it was a, very rich experience for me to be able to go back and forth actually between Signs of Columbus, or skin uh, Signs of the Americas and, and uh, uh, skins of Columbus, because the way in which all of these works uh, are, you know evoking the, the continuities between the dream space and the myth space and the magical space and the creative space. Uh, to just treat it, to just focus on the sort of purely rationalistic discourse that one can create about them, is to somehow to miss to miss the invitation uh, that they're putting putting out to us.
1: Thanks for letting me draw on some of the creative work and the poetry too, because as you notice, the critical and the creative are totally intertwined for me and uh, uh, the Skins of Columbus project. Uh, Maybe I could say a quick thing about it was uh, an extension of the same spirit that motivated the Science of the Americas project, which is to take seriously uh, forms of intextualization, that is to say, literature and culture that uh, for various reasons of intellectual arrogance tend not to be taken seriously as literature and culture or historically uh, uh, have tended not to be taken seriously. So not only pictographs, hieroglyphs, and kipu, but also dreams, magic, shamanism, and Skins of Columbus is uh, within that broader spirit that motivates my work An attempt to take seriously the historical content of dreams, uh, especially of colonial dreams. And what that means in practical terms uh, is that for the three months during which Columbus traveled the coast of the Americas, I read his journal entries uh, before going to sleep at night, forcing myself to think intently on the symbols, motives, logics, landscapes, uh, uh, actions, uh, to make myself dream uh, this journal and see how it reticulated connected, networked in my uh, sleeping mind, in my subconscious. Now, of course, because it's my dreaming mind, uh, it's also entangled with family history. So uh, uh, a number of the essays and the poems in there are about my family's migration histories from Guatemala, Nicaragua, El Salvador. And one way in which I've uh, uh, come to describe uh, the synthesis of these two works is in terms of anthropological poetics, and one person that has helped me to think about what anthropological poetics could be is Cecilia Vicuña. Uh, and Cecilia Vicuña, as you know, appears at the end of uh, Signs of the Americas, and very much um, serves to give the book its uh, conceptual uh, uh, give the book its conceptual culmination. Um, and that conceptual culmination happens in a lot of ways in response to a question you asked very early in our conversation, which was about loss and disappearance, and um, uh, in Vicuña's works, loss and disappearance uh, uh, have two main meanings. Uh, on the one hand, because she's working with kipu, uh, or Andean knot writing, that is um, a type of writing um, uh, produced by cords pendant from a main cord, the uh, semiotics of which are produced by the distance between the knots on the cord and their shape. Um, and sometimes their color and the texture of the fabric through which the K-N-O-T knots are made on the cord. Um, it's a kind of binaristic writing um, uh, for which we have a semiotics, uh, semiotic understanding, but not an entire semantics. We haven't filled out the meaning of this science system yet. Uh, in any case, Vicuña uh, 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 works a lot with the uh, Kipu, um uh, which are uh shot through with a sense of disappearance in as much as they were one of these sign systems uh deliberately destroyed by colonial powers and then uh over time erased through various forms of uh prohibition on reading or communicating uh through the uh, through the kipu, which contained not only accounting information, numerical information, statistical information, but narrative, poetry, and history as well, in the same way that you might think of a Mayan uh, codex. Um, uh, in any case, that's one of the uh, uh, nodes of disappearance in her work, and then the other node of disappearance is the forced disappearances by Latin American uh, free market dictators in the 20th century, extending to today. Uh, uh, that is to say, the disappearances of people. Uh, and um, uh, uh, this, of course, happened uh, very prominently in Vicuña's home country of Chile. Uh, but uh, as uh, 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 listeners will know, was a practice common uh, throughout the dictatorships of Latin America in the 20th century. And in many ways, her works are trying to bridge these two disappearances, uh, uh, these two kinds of disappearances, to think of them in a continuum rather than a a, a, a historical separation. Um, And in doing that, in thinking about disappearance of the Americas as the main things to which any poetics of the Americas has to respond, um, what I call anthropological poetics is really feeling that disappearance and silence and loss are not the only things to be described. Uh, that there are worlds in what seems to be emptiness, in what seems to be disappearance, in what seems to be loss. Uh, And um, it's Cecilia Vicuña who has taught me that uh, 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 world-bearing way of thinking about the poetics and cultures of the Americas, that is to think of them not only as attenuated, disappearing, destroyed, uh, uh, otherwise um, forever lost, uh, cultures and histories, but very much a part of a living present that is pressing upon us at every uh, moment.
3: When this
2: language
3: disappeared, all
1: that was left was these words.
0: all we've got for you today. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Edgar Garcia. If you want to delve more deeply into Edgar's work, the books we've been discussing are Signs of the Americas, a Poetics of Pictography, Hieroglyphs, and Kipu, published by the University of Chicago Press, and Skins of Columbus, a Dream Ethnography, published by Fence Books. The performances you heard dispersed throughout this piece were, in order of their appearance, Alba de Abla, by Cecilia Vicuña, Tuira SL Oro, by Cecilia Vicuña, Nepantla, by Gloria Anzaldúa, and When This Language Disappeared, which was also by Cecilia Vicuña. The theme music for this episode, and for all my episodes, was composed by Andre Popazuda. A big old thanks to Carmen Port quinones for her editing, encouragement, and great ideas. I'm David Goodhertz, and you've been listening to New Books in Intellectual History. So long and stay safe.